Chapter 7 of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy in Lehigh, Utah. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter 7 Jem Wilson's Repulse. How infinite the wealth of love and hope garnered in these same tiny treasure houses! And oh, what bankrupts in the world we feel when death, like some remorseless creditor, seizes on all we fondly thought our own. The Twins The ghoul-like fever was not to be braved with impunity, and balked of its prey. The widow had reclaimed her children, her neighbors, in the good Samaritan sense of the word, had paid her little arrears of rent, and made her a few shillings beforehand with the world. She determined to flit from that cellar to another less full of painful associations, less haunted by mournful memories. The board, not so formidable as she had imagined, had inquired into her case, and, instead of sending her to Stoke Claypole, her husband's Buckinghamshire parish, as she had dreaded, had agreed to pay her rent. So food for four mouths was all she was now required to find. Only for three, she would have said, for herself and the unweaned child were but reckoned as one in her calculation. She had a strong heart. Now her bodily strength had been recruited by a week or two of food, and she would not despair. So she took in some little children to nurse, who brought their daily food with them, which she cooked for them without wronging their helplessness of a crumb. And when she had restored them to their mothers at night, she set to work at plain sewing, seam and gusset, and band, and sat thinking how she might best cheat the factory inspector, and persuade him that her strong, big, hungry Ben was above thirteen. Her plan of living was so far arranged, when she heard with keen sorrow, that Wilson's twin lads were ill of the fever. They had never been strong, they were like many a pair of twins, and seemed to have but one life divided between them. One life, one strength, and, in this instance, I might almost say one brain, for they were helpless, gentle, silly children, but not the less dear to their parents and to their strong, active, manly elder brother. They were late on their feet, late in talking, late in every way, had to be nursed and cared for when other lads of their age were tumbling about in the street and losing themselves and being taken to the police office miles away from home. Still, want had never yet come in at the door to make love for these innocents fly out of the window, nor was this the case even now, when Jem Wilson's earnings and his mother's occasional charrings were barely sufficient to give all the family their fill of food. But when the twins, after ailing many days and caring little for their meat, fell sick on the same afternoon with the same heavy stupor of suffering the three hearts that loved them so each felt though none acknowledged to the other that they had little chance for life it was nearly a week before the tale of their illness spread as far as the court where the wilsons had once dwelt and the bartons yet lived alice had heard of the sickness of her little nephew several days before and had locked her cellar door and gone off straight to her brother's house in ancoats but she was often absent for days, sent for, as her neighbors knew, to help in some sudden emergency of illness or distress, so that occasioned no surprise. Margaret met Jem Wilson several days after his brothers were seriously ill, and heard from him the state of things at his home. She told Mary of it as she entered the court late that evening, and Mary listened with a saddened heart to the strange contrast 
which such woeful tidings presented to the gay and loving words she had been hearing on her walk home. She blamed herself for being so much taken up with visions of the golden future that she had lately gone but seldom on Sunday afternoons or other leisure time to see Mrs. Wilson, her mother's friend, and with hasty purpose of amendment she only stayed to leave a message for her father with the next-door neighbor, and then went off at a brisk pace on her way to the house of mourning. She stopped with her hand on the latch of the Wilson's door to still her beating heart, and listened to the hushed quiet within. She opened the door softly. There sat Mrs. Wilson in the old rocking chair, with one sick, death-like boy lying on her knee, crying without let or pause. But softly, gently, as fearing to disturb the troubled, gasping child, while behind her, old Alice let her fast-dropping tears fall down on the dead body of the other twin, which she was laying out on a board placed on a sort of sofa settee in the corner of the room. Over the child which yet breathed the father bent, watching anxiously for some ground of hope where hope there was none. Mary stepped slowly and lightly across to Alice. Ay, poor lad, God has taken him early, Mary. Mary could not speak. She did not know what to say. It was so much worse than she had expected. At last she ventured to whisper, Is there any chance for the other one, think you? Alice shook her head and told with a look that she believed there was none. She next endeavored to lift the little body and carry it to its old accustomed bed in the parents' room. But earnest as the father was in watching the yet living, he had eyes and ears for all that concerned the dead, and sprang gently up, and took his dead son on his hard couch in his arms with tender strength, and carried him upstairs, as if afraid of wakening him. The other child gasped louder, longer, with more effort. "'We mun get him away from his mother. He cannot die while she's wishing him.' "'Wishing him,' said Mary, in a tone of inquiry. "'I don't know ye know what wishing means. There's none can die in the arms of those who are wishing them sore to stay on earth. The soul of them, as holds them, won't let the dying soul go free, so it has a hard struggle for the quiet of death.' We mun get him away from his mother, or he'll have a hard death, poor little fellow. So without circumlocution she went and offered to take the sinking child, but the mother would not let go of him, and looking in Alice's face with brimming and imploring eyes, declared in earnest whispers that she was not wishing him, that she would fain have him released from his suffering. Alice and Mary stood by with eyes fixed on the poor child, whose struggles seemed to increase, till at last his mother said, with a choking voice, "'Mayhap, and you'd better take him, Alice. I believe my heart's wishing at this while, for I cannot, no, I cannot bring myself to let my two children go in one day. I cannot help longing to keep him, and yet he shan't suffer longer for me.' She bent down, and fondly, oh, with what passionate fondness, kissed her child, and then gave him up to Alice, who took him with tender care. Nature's struggles were soon exhausted, and he breathed his little life away in peace. Then the mother lifted up her voice and wept. Her cries brought her husband down to try with his aching heart to comfort hers. Again Alice laid out the dead, Mary helping with reverent fear. The father and mother carried him upstairs to the bed where his little brother lay in calm repose. 
Mary and Alice drew near the fire and stood in quiet sorrow for some time. Then Alice broke the silence by saying, "'It will be bad news for Jem, poor fellow, when he comes home.' "'Where is he?' asked Mary. "'Working over hours at the shop. "'They ain't getting a large order from foreign parts, and you know, Jem wouldn't work, "'though his heart's well-nigh breaking for these poor laddies.' "'Again they were silent in thought, and again Alice spoke first. "'I sometimes think the Lord is against planning.' Whene'er I plan over much, he is sure to send and mar all my plans, as if he would have me put the future into his hands. Afore Christmas time, I was as full as full could be of going home for good and all. You and heard how I've wished it this terrible long time. And a young lass from behind Burton came into place in Manchester last Martinmas. So after a while she had a Sunday out, and she comes to me and tells me some cousins of mine bid her find me out and say how glad they should be to have me bide with them and look after their children, for they ain't getting a big farm, and she's a deal to do among the cows. So many's a winter night I did lie awake and think that please God come summer I'd bid George and his wife good-bye and go home at last. Little did I think how God Almighty would balk me for not leaving my days in his hands, who had led me through the wilderness hitherto. Here's George out of work and more cast down than ever I'd seed him, wanting every chip o' comfort he can get, e'en afore his last heavy stroke, and now I'm thinking the Lord's finger points very clear to my fit abiding place. And I'm sure if George and Jane can say his will be done, that's no more than what I'm beholden to do. So saying, she fell to tidying the room, removing as much as she could every vestige of sickness, making up the fire, and setting on the kettle for a cup of tea for her sister-in-law, whose low moans and sobs were occasionally heard in the room below. Mary helped her in all these little offices. They were busy in this way when the door was softly opened and Jem came in, all grimed and dirty from his night work, his soiled apron wrapped around his middle, in guise and apparel, in which he would have been sorry at another time to have been seen by Mary. But just now he hardly saw her. He went straight up to Alice, and asked how the little chaps were. They had been a shade better at dinner-time and he had been working away through the long afternoon and far into the night, in the belief that they had taken the turn. He had stolen out during the half-hour, allowed at the works for tea, to buy them an orange or two, which now puffed out his jacket-pocket. He would make his aunt speak, he would not understand her shake of the head and fast-coursing tears. "'They're both gone,' said she. "'Dead!' "'Aye, poor fellows!' They took worse about two o'clock. Joe went first, easy as a lamb, and Will died harder-like. Both! Aye, lad, both. The Lord has taken them from some evil to come, or he would not have made choice of them. You may rest sure of that. Jem went to the cupboard and quietly extricated from his pocket the oranges he had bought. But he stayed long there, and at last his sturdy frame shook with his strong agony. The two women were frightened, as women always are, on witnessing a man's overpowering grief. They cried afresh in company. Mary's heart melted within her as she witnessed Jem's sorrow, and she stepped gently up to the corner where he stood, with his back turned to them, and putting her hand softly on his arm, said, "'Oh, Jem, don't give way so. I cannot bear to see you.' Jem felt a strange leap of joy in his heart, and knew the power she had of comforting him. He did not speak, as though fearing to destroy by sound or motion the happiness of that moment, 
when her soft hands touched thrilled through his frame and her silvery voice was whispering tenderness in his ear yes it might be very wrong he could almost hate himself for it with death and woe so surrounding him it was yet happiness was bliss to be spoken to by mary don't jim please don't whispered she again believing that his silence was only another form of grief he could not contain himself he took her hand in his firm yet trembling grasp and said in tones that instantly produced a revulsion in her mood mary i almost loathe myself when i feel i would not give up this minute when my brothers lie dead and father and mother are in such trouble for all my life that's past and gone and mary as she tried to release her hand you know what makes me feel so blessed she did know he was right there but as he turned to catch a look at her sweet face he saw that it expressed unfeigned distress almost amounting to vexation a dread of him that he thought was almost repugnance he let her hand go and she quickly went away to alice's side fool that i was nay wretch that i was to let myself take this time of trouble to tell her how i loved her no wonder that she turns away from such a selfish beast partly to relieve her from his presence and partly from natural desire and partly perhaps from a penitent wish to share to the utmost his parents sorrow he soon went upstairs to the chamber of death mary mechanically helped alice in all the duties she performed through the remainder of that long night but she did not see jem again he remained upstairs until after the early dawn showed mary that she need have no fear of going home through the deserted and quiet streets to try and get a little sleep before work hour so leaving kind messages to george and jane wilson and hesitating whether she might dare to send a few kind words to jem and deciding that she had better not she stepped out into the bright morning light so fresh a contrast to the darkened room where death had been they had another morn than ours mary lay down on her bed in her clothes and whether it was this or the broad daylight that poured in through the sky window or whether it was over excitement it was long before she could catch a wink of sleep her thoughts ran on jem's manner and words not but what she had known the tale they told for many a day but still she wished he had not put it so plainly oh dear she said to herself i wish he would not mistake me so i never dare to speak a common word of kindness but his eye brightens and his cheek flushes it's very hard on me for father and george wilson are old friends and jem and i have known each other since we were quite children i cannot think what possesses me that i must always be wanting to comfort him when he's downcast and that i must go meddling with him to-night when sure enough it was his aunt's place to speak to him i don't care for him and yet unless i'm always watching myself i'm speaking to him in a loving voice i think i cannot go right for i either check myself till i'm downright cross to him or else i speak just natural and that's too kind and tender by half and i'm as good as engaged to be married to another and another far handsomer than jem only i think i like jem's face best for all that liking's liking and there's no help for it well when i'm mrs harry carson may happen i can put some good fortune in jem's way but will he thank me for it he's rather savage at times that i can see 
and perhaps kindness from me when I'm another's, will only go against the grain. I'll not plague myself with thinking any more about him, that I won't. So she turned on her pillow and fell asleep, and dreamt of what was often in her waking thoughts, of the day when she should ride from church in her carriage, with wedding bells ringing, and take up her astonished father and drive away from the old dim workaday court forever, to live in a grand house, where her father should have newspapers and pamphlets and pipes and meat dinners every day and all day long, if he liked. Such thoughts mingled in her predilection for the handsome young Mr. Carson, who, unfettered by work hours, let scarcely a day pass without contriving a meeting with the beautiful little milliner he had first seen while lounging in a shop where his sisters were making some purchases, and afterwards never rested till he had freely, though respectfully, made her acquaintance in her daily walks. He was, to use his own expression to himself, quite infatuated by her, and was restless each day till the time came when he had a chance, and of late, more than a chance, of meeting her. There was something of keen, practical shrewdness about her, which contrasted very bewitchingly with the simple, foolish, unworldly ideas she had picked up from the romances which Miss Simmons' young ladies were in the habit of recommending to each other. Yes, Mary was ambitious, and did not favor Mr. Carson the less because he was rich and a gentleman. The old leaven infused years ago by her Aunt Esther fermented in her little bosom, and perhaps all the more for her father's aversion to the rich and the gentle. Such is the contrariness of the human heart, from Eve downwards, that we all, in our old Adam state, fancy things forbidden, sweetest. So Mary dwelt upon and enjoyed the idea of some day becoming a lady, and doing all of the elegant nothings appertaining to ladyhood. It was a comfort to her when scolded by Miss Simmons to think of the day when she would drive up to the door in her own carriage to order her gowns from the hasty-tempered yet kind dressmaker. It was a pleasure to her to hear the general admiration of the two elder Miss Carsons, acknowledged beauties in ballroom and street, on horseback and on foot, and to think of the time when she should ride and walk with them in loving sisterhood. But the best of her plans, the holiest, that which in some measure redeemed the vanity of the rest, were those relating to her father, her dear father. Now oppressed with care, and always a disheartened, gloomy person, how she would surround him with every comfort she could devise. Of course he was to live with them, till he should acknowledge riches to be very pleasant things, and bless his lady daughter. Every one who had shown her kindness in her low estate should then be repaid a hundredfold. Such were the castles in the air, the Alnisher visions in which Mary indulged and which she was doomed in after-days to expiate with many tears. Meanwhile her words, or even more her tones, would maintain their hold on Jem Wilson's memory. A thrill would yet come over him when he remembered how her hand had rested on his arm, the thought of her mingled with all his grief, and it was profound for the loss of his brothers. End of chapter 7